Hi, I'm Fazla Seeker, the president and CEO of Molly Surgical. And Femtech to me is about women really supporting women. And we need that now more than ever because historically pandemics have really disproportionately affected women. And so this is the time when we really need to reinvent healthcare for better care for women to make sure that everyone's getting the care they need timely. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash Femtech. Okay, Fem fans, before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you about our new published report on the Femtech landscape. This white paper outlines the women's health industry based on Femtech Focus's proprietary research and databases. Some highlights of the report include that the market is worth $1 trillion. And of the 105 Femtech exits that have happened since 1990, 50%, 50%, of them have happened in the last five years. So now is an amazing time to be in women's health innovation. If you want to read the full report, go to femtechfocus.org backslash resources. Be sure to use the data to further your goals in women's health business. And also be sure to reference Femtech Focus and maybe even make a donation. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your contributions to operate. All right. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Fazila Seeker, co-founder and CEO of Molly Surgical. Molly Surgical has developed a device that creates a better treatment journey for breast cancer patients. The device is a cutting-edge magnetic technology that shows surgeons say that five times fast, shows surgeons where to remove tissue inside the breast, either through a lumpectomy or to test for cancer or to remove a cancerous mass. The current procedure is called a wire-guided excision biopsy. Yep, you're going to be shocked what they currently do. (laughs) What they do is they put a thin wire into the breast tissue to show the surgeon the exact area that needs to be removed inside the breast. The end of the wire inside the cells that need to be removed has a hook and it's latched in there into the tissue. The other end of the wire actually hangs out of the woman's body and is taped to her side for maybe up to a day until her surgery. Molly, on the other hand, is a small magnetic bullet that is inserted into the breast into the target site um, where the surgeon needs to do surgery. No wires are involved. No wires are hanging outside the body. So the woman can actually go up to 30 days with this little magnetic piece inside of her. And she doesn't need to rush into surgery within the next 24 hours. Not only is it more convenient and less graphic than the wire method, but it also helps surgeon remove lesions more efficiently and accurately. 
Molly is approved for use in Canada and the U.S. Fazla also hosts a weekly Facebook live show called Breast Practices, where experts and patients discuss topics in patient-centered care. Learn more about Molly and check out her show, Breast Practices, at mollysurgical.com. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Fazla, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Definitely excited to have you here and learning more about Molly Surgical. Um, so glad that you listened to some of the other episodes and you know that this sounds, you called it a coffee date. I love that. No one's described <laughs> it as that yet. It sounded just like a great, you know, chat between two intelligent women. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Listeners, if you think this sounds like a coffee date, tell us. We want to hear from y'all. Um, but I always try to make it just like this really fun environment. So um, because that's what women's health should be. It should be just like us all working together on this bigger, on this bigger issue, this bigger cause, right? Um, so exciting. Well, let's start off your interview with a little bit about your background. Our listeners love to learn more about our guests. So let us know, like, where are you from? What did you study? I heard you have a PhD. So tell us more about that. And then how did you end up here in women's health? Yeah, I always like to start out with why and what drives me, because I also think that's the most interesting question about anyone's progression. So look, I've always I'm I'm a scientist by background, the PhDs in chemistry, but I've always been driven by the, you know, learning about new things and understanding how things work. And um, but I think that that's important, an important part of just how to improve things. And so I've always kind of liked to ask why, and that's always been my favorite question. So Mm -hmm. I've always liked to challenge the status quo. And um, my inspiration for chemistry initially as the lens for how to understand the world. Well, so I'm a, come from a family of two kids, was, uh, grew up in Toronto here in Canada. And my older brother was a big influence on me. He was 12 years older than me. So mornings over coffee, He'd be telling me about when he put the cream in his coffee, he'd start talking to me about how, well, it mixes and I don't even have to mix it. And it's because of the molecules. And so I was kind of destined to go to chemistry. Yeah, that's <laughs> like <laughs> five years old listening to that, right? Over breakfast. And um, but my career progressed um, and uh, I was 13 years in the US. And that's really where my professional outlook kind of got shaped by that experience doing my PhD in chemistry there at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. It was a terrific experience. And then I moved over to the GE Global Research Center in upstate New York in Iskayuna, where I spent about eight years. And that, I have to say that that combination of experience is really what sort of opened me up to, you know, really being more open about challenging the status quo. Um, and most importantly, to surround myself with uh, people that I respect and look up to. The transition to women's health, how that happened. Well, when I moved back home to Toronto and I was looking for, you know, what's next and what made sense here, um, just through my network here, I got introduced to uh, a medical device um, to technology accelerator. And that's really where I got to learn about a lot of um, technologies coming out of some fantastic research hospitals and universities here in the Toronto area around breast cancer. And I, of course, know breast cancer is such a huge women's health issue. It's the number one um, cancer. Um, And uh, I was really kind of struck and and frankly surprised at how, um, I'll I'll be blunt, how sort of uh, outdated or, or even barbaric some of the treatment was. 
And, you know, you put that together with my, I like to improve things and challenge the status quo. And that's kind of how I'm here. Did you also consider yourself a feminist? Well, I think that just by being uh, women, we all are, right? And so... Women um, <laughs> in STEM, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the the great thing, though, Brittany, is that I had a background where my parents raised uh, me and my brother. I didn't feel a difference in the way that we were raised. We were both equally encouraged to you know, study, um, get that education, because they didn't have those opportunities growing up. And so... They made some tough decisions and let their little girl move away as, as uh, to, to go to university and do her PhD. So I think that that made a tremendous um, impact on me because I never honestly was ever aware when I'm off, when I'm working of, you know, I'm a woman in a man's world. And mm-hmm. I, I never really thought that way. Yeah. Yeah. Were your parents immigrants? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am of Turkish heritage. And if anyone's watching the video, that's the plates in the back. I love ceramic art. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, they moved here. And about a year after they moved to Toronto, um, that's when I was born and grew up here. Got it. Got it. Amazing. I love, love, love how many of our guests were not like they didn't grow up with everything handed to them. They didn't grow up uh, like very, you know, not that our lives are hard, but challenges were presented, you know, and we saw what hard work looked like a lot of times. Right. Um, so I, I just love hearing people's personal stories like that. I asked about the feminism part because a lot of times when I talk about what femtech is and I use the same word, I say it's barbaric, like what the current standard of treatment is or what the current procedure is, is it's mind blowing that we're in 2021 and this is what we do. And oftentimes people are like, huh, I've been a feminist my whole life. I didn't even know healthcare was an issue I had to talk about, you know, like I thought women's health and men's health were like on equal playing fields. And it's like, nope, not at all. Um, And so tell us a little bit more about this, the breast cancer things. What kind of things were you seeing that you were like in shock about? Well, so let me talk about Molly because I actually got to learn about Molly through my previous role. I was running a medical um, device division within this um, technology accelerator. And so we would see hundreds of um, these really kind of, you know, early inventions. Mm -hmm. And Molly, that's how I got to know about Molly and met my my co-founders. So first, let's start off with why you would need something like Molly. And so uh, because there's 60% of tumors are so small in breast cancer. They're literally like 40% of tumors are less than 10 millimeters in size. That's really, really small. And they can't be felt. And if they can't be felt, then um, you need a way to, uh, for the surgeon to be able to find the tumor during the surgery so they can remove it. Okay. And the way that that is done now is what's barbaric. And that's what was so eye-opening about Molly. Mm-hmm. So um, let me tell you a little bit about how the Molly story started because it really came about because of what uh, really desperately needed improvement in that space. So Molly really started when breast cancer patients through the Patient and Family Advisory Council at Sunnybrook Hospital here in Toronto, Canada, they described their own experiences with the current standard for lumpectomy. And so what has been used for lumpectomies is a long wire. It literally is what it sounds like. It is a long wire 
um, that's used to help surgeons find the tumor so that they can remove it. So well, the way it works is one end of that long wire, uh, it's about eight inches long, so pretty long, one end of that gets inserted inside the breast and that marks where the tumor is. But the other end of that wire is literally sticking out of the breast tissue. And so you can imagine how patients would have described their experience. They described a lot of discomfort, a lot of anxiety, and also- They were awake? They're totally awake for this, what? right? So they're having both this wire being placed, this radiology uh, procedure in the morning, and then they're also having the surgery the same day, right? So they're awake through it all. Um, it just, it gets placed like a needle. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right, just like a biopsy. Yeah. But- and when you have a biopsy, there's nothing sticking out of your breast, right? And so now you got this thing sticking out of your body. Now, I've had with some of the um, some of the ladies I've spoken to have had the experience described it like a guitar string sticking out of your breast. Okay, for how long? It could be for several hours. So that's part of the the what's so unpredictable about it. You don't know when your the OR is going to be ready for you. So it could be three, four hours just sitting around. And that's some of the most common questions that patients will ask the, their care team in the hospital. So do you know when I'll be ready, uh, when they'll be ready for me for surgery? Yeah. So you can imagine just, you know, how uh, that experience is. Yeah. It's like fear that's been stuck in just to, you know, point to where this tumor is and that's how they're going to find it. Um, and listen, when it was invented back in the seventies, it was very useful and groundbreaking. And it's because what's happened is that over time, um, breast screening has advanced so much that you can now see these really tiny tumors that you couldn't see before. Mm -hmm. That's great news because you want to find it when it's early on, obviously, um, because when they're, that's when they're most treatable. But the technologies to remove it didn't um, track along with all that technology development for screening. So that's that's where the opportunity um, was here to improve. You know, why do we have to keep doing it this way? And that's exactly the question that Sonny Brooks started asking themselves. The VP of the Cancer Center heard that feedback from um, the, the patients and went and approached two of um, their medical physicists, the inventors of Molly and now my co-founders. And that's when I met them over five years ago in 2015. And uh, so, what they had come up with was totally do away with this um, wire approach and instead replace it with this really tiny, um, what we call now a molly marker. It's a magnetic seed mm -hmm. and it's only three millimeters in size. And so something that tiny is the size of a sesame seed gets placed um, just like you're doing a biopsy procedure, right? But you leave an implant, that tiny molly marker, that sesame seed size magnetic seed and now there's no more waiting. So Molly does away with all of that. And the patient can go away and come back for their scheduled surgery. And so you can imagine just how much that takes away the anxiety. It also is providing surgeons a way to be able to um, more precisely remove, uh, locate and remove the tumor. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is there's like this little uh, magnetic Molly little piece that is yeah. inserted and does it go into the tumor yes yes okay. and then the woman can you know go to the cafeteria or do whatever before her award well you know what you what's really great is that um the patient can just go away back to life and come back on their scheduled day of surgery so this 
Molly marker can be placed um, any time 30 days before the surgery, or if the patient wants to, they can have surgery on the same day. The patient has a say on their schedule. Oh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Get rid of that wire. Okay. So um, how does it help the surgeon find where the tumor is? So uh, what the uh, surgeon uses is there's a handheld wand that can actually detect the magnetic signal from that uh, Molly marker. And what that uh, wand does is it will actually give a distance readout. And that way, throughout the entire procedure, the surgeon is able to accurately locate exactly where that uh, Molly marker is, which is marking where the tumor is. And so throughout the procedure, that will guide them to it and they can more precisely remove it. And the best part, Brittany, is that that also helps them achieve the best cosmetic results. Tell us more about that. Why is that? Well, think about um, wire. So if the wire is sticking in, that's already created um, some sort of path through the tissue and some uh, path to a scar. But the way that the wire gets put in by the radiologist in radiology might not necessarily be the best um, path from a surgical incision perspective. Uh And so by decoupling these two departments, and their specialties, you let each of them do their best work instead of them relying on one another. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So how, how common are lumpectomies? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so most women, and that's like over 60% with early stage breast cancer will choose the lumpectomy option. And I say option because again, let's start back with um, the why, why uh, would uh, a woman get a lumpectomy? I'd mm-hmm. like to go back to that first. The first thing that's really important to know is that the lumpectomy is a patient's choice. It's a very, very personal decision that patients with an early stage breast cancer um, are weighing against another option and that's a mastectomy for whole breast removal. Mm-hmm. So I really want to emphasize here that there's no right or wrong choice and that both are the same in terms of survival and risk of the cancer coming back. And so- Both are, whether you take the whole breast or just the little 10 millimeter thing. That's right, that's right. And so there's no difference from uh, survival or risk of cancer mastectomy or lumpectomy. And it really comes down to what's um, right for the patients and their, um, for them themselves and their own value systems. So there's a lot of different things that go into it depending on the person's own ethnic, cultural, you know, situation. And there's also in terms of, you know, what's involved in coming in. Mastectomy is a major surgery, right? That comes with its own risks mm-hmm. and time away from work. Lumpectomy um, in, involves a course of radiation treatment right afterwards. And so those are some of the things that a patient's getting thrown at yeah. um, all this information and trying to make that decision. So I just want to emphasize again, there's no right or wrong decision. It's a very, very personal decision. Having said that, most women do choose lumpectomies. Yeah. When, if they get a mastectomy, which is the whole breast, do they still have radiation or no? It will depend on their course of treatment. In some cases there will be. Yeah. Interesting. Do you know if, um, and it's totally fine if you don't, I come up with lots of questions on the spot, but like, <laughs> cause it's so interesting. I want to dig deeper. Do you know if there's certain trends based on different countries or cultures or like the age of the woman that whether they choose lumpectomy or mastectomy? Um, there are, um, some differences and, uh, 
I do know that there was um, a study that had recently looked into that. And at least within the US, mm -hmm. um, typically women who choose lumpectomies um, are uh, highly educated, um, typically, I believe, um, so don't quote me on this, but mm -hmm. I believe, um, you know, over the age of 50, I think the younger women tend to choose mastectomies. So, um, yeah. but if that's something that your readers are interested in, I'm happy to pull up that. Um, yeah. it along that's, later. that's interesting. Cause I wonder if, uh, that is less of a, um, you know, over 50, you know, they do lumpectomy versus under, uh, that's, I wonder if it's more of a generational thing. Like it's baby boomers. It's not just the age. It's about the generation and their mindset around having a breast, not having breasts. I think that's, that's just really interesting listeners. If you know anything about that, hit us up on social media and tell us more about the, that. I think that's super interesting. Um, can, do you know that how many lumpectomies happen a year in the U S yeah, so in the U.S., um, every year there's about 170,000 lumpectomies that occur. Wow. wow. Um, and uh, do women have like multiple lumpectomies sometimes? It could happen, right? And so what needs to happen is that um, once the lumpectomy, um, uh, after the lumpectomy procedure, the tumor that's removed, that, that still needs to be checked by pathology to make sure that there aren't any breast cancer cells that are left behind. Because the goal of the surgeon is to remove the tumor, but with a rim of healthy tissue around it. Yep. And you won't know then until you get that pathology back. And so there, there can be a re-excision, uh, another uh, surgery afterwards, depending on that. Got it. Um, so how far along in the process is Molly? Or is it being used yet? Or is it still in the process of getting approval? So Molly is a new medical device for um, breast cancer surgery that was just uh, cleared by FDA and that we just launched at Molly Surgical. So, and uh, again, I just want to emphasize that it, uh, what it does is it helps address two of the greatest concerns that patients have, and that is get the tumor out, but also do that while achieving the best cosmetic results. Yeah. So, and what it does is it really makes it easy for surgeons to more precisely locate and remove uh, the breast cancer. Yeah, amazing. Do you think that um, Molly could be used for other things? I know lumpectomy, is lumpectomy a word specifically for breasts or, or can you get lumpectomy other places in your body? Yeah, lumpectomy is a term that's used just for um, breast surgery. Oh, but is it? Okay. The question about are there other needs? That's a great question. You know, Molly at its core is a finding technology. It's all about finding things that you can't feel or otherwise see easily. And um, our clearance by FDA is actually for what's called soft tissue. So you can actually go anywhere in the body. And that's part of what, you know, we're um, learning and exploring with surgeons as we get out into the market. Because when we're talking to breast surgeons, Brittany, we also realize that we're talking with general surgeons who've chosen to dedicate their practice to breast surgery. So we know that general surgeons, um, they're going to have other finding needs. And so yep. we're working on that. How interesting. Well, let's talk about your show. You have an amazing show called Breast Practices. Um, when did you start this? Uh, it's been uh, just over a year now, actually, just yeah. before the pandemic. Yeah. I 
I started this podcast March 2020. We went into lockdown. Oh, yeah. and it was like me by myself in an apartment for every day, 24 hours is not a good look. I'm going to start a show. <laughs> it turned out to be like very successful. So that's, that's awesome to hear that breast pack practices is kind of on a similar timeline. Um, what platform is it on and, and what do you talk about? So it's a Facebook live show. Okay. Um, and it's every Tuesday. Uh, we do it at 1230 to one uh, Eastern time. And I guess, again, I'm going to start out with breast practices. I have to first say that it's just, it's such an honor having the opportunity every week to learn about breast cancer treatment experiences from my guests who graciously lend their time and their expertise each week. And so I talk with patients, I talk with patient advocates, physicians, various members of the care team and innovators in the breast cancer research um, area. And in this way, Brittany, my goal is to really bring the breast cancer community together to tackle what we mean by patient-centered care mm -hmm. and inspire action in areas like shared decision-making, health and racial disparities and patient advocacy. So the community that you're bringing together, is it more so the, the patients and survivors or is it more so on the healthcare team side? No, we're, we bring together everybody across the entire spectrum because I think that, um, you know, I often think about why do we talk about the term patient-centered care? Why did it come about? Healthcare was always supposed to be about the patient, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else are we supposed to focus on? <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason why the entire healthcare system exists. Yeah. So why do we even talk about it? Well, healthcare, it's just a symptom of the fact that healthcare has become so complicated. And that's why I want to pull in all everybody who's involved all around the patient, the patient advocates, the physicians. And so we'll, we'll have episodes where we'll have physicians and patients on the show at the same time, where we're really tackling some of these issues and having uh, hearing from both sides. Um, what do you notice any uh, topics that have been coming up that you would be like, that's also barbaric added to the list needs improvement, right? I can imagine that there's more than just that wire, you know, um, thing that is the barbaric part of breast cancer treatment or discovery. Is there other parts of breast cancer that are just like super out of date that you wish could be updated? There are, but I have to say that the most striking, um, learning from the show and listening to the, the patients mm -hmm. is, is just this, um, the emotional aspect of it. I think that there is so much emphasis on you know, fixing this body part that is the entire experience is about so much more than that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I hear time and time and time again is uh, from patients is, you know, they want to be treated and be uh, feel like through the experience that they are a whole person. And so that's why that the dialogue around shared decision-making, finding that physician who you really have a chemistry and a relationship with is so important. And that is um, one of the, the very um, key themes that we talk about on the show. Wow. That's a, um, how about like, uh, I know there's a trend in, in femtech I hear a lot about, and it's like shocking that, you know, a lot of healthcare focuses on, you know, like treat it, but then the woman is a survivor and everyone's like, Yay, you're a survivor, go live your life. And she's like, um, I have all of these side effects <laughs> because I just, had a mastectomy or I had radiation, I had chemo. And so like, they have all these consequences of that happening to their body, but everyone's like, oh, you're a survivor now. Great. Go live a great life. Does that come up a lot? The aftercare of, of cancer surviving? 
Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that I want to raise some attention to that I've learned, because I, again, I think it's so important to listen and learn if we are to have any hope of improving mm-hmm. um, the state of care. One of the things that I've um, learned is there's there's quite a bit of sensitivity even around the use of terms. Survivor. I've had patients tell me that um, that that's a term that um, that that they don't understand it. That frankly doesn't make them feel good, right? Uh, ah. Use using sort of warlike language, like you came out of a war. Yeah, it just doesn't ring true. And so they really want. I tend to hear they really want to be, you know talked about in the way they talk about their own experiences that they they're living with breast cancer or they live with breast cancer mm-hmm. I think that some of the greatest concerns that I hear is it's not all you know one and done as you're saying you know once you've gotten your treatment because what I heard a breast cancer patient the other day express that um, you know they never want to take it for granted there there's always that question in the back of their mind is it going to come back Yep, that's right. It's, uh, you know, cancer is always in remission. It's never cured, right? It's always like just kind of waiting and hoping it doesn't come back either in the same place or somewhere else. Absolutely. On your show, Breast Practices, is it always just about breast cancer or there's other things that come up that you'll talk about? Uh, it is truly dedicated to the breast cancer treatment journey. Mm-hmm. And so all aspects and bringing in all those perspectives that I mentioned. Yeah, got it. Cool. Well, you know, um, this has been so awesome. I want to ask you two other questions and let's dive into it a little bit. Uh, These are two questions our listeners really love. So, you know, we have a lot of aspiring founders listening. I love our university students, our graduate students. Um, You are the future of femtech. So I'm so glad we have so many of you listening. Um, And I know a lot of them want to start a femtech company and they're wondering, well, what in women's health needs innovating? So what, in your opinion, do you think still needs innovating in the women's health space? That's just so topical right now, especially in a world that's been entirely changed by COVID. Mm -hmm. And so historically, women are most affected by pandemics and the need for innovative femtech is greater now than it's ever been, Brittany. So when it comes to cancer um, and the field that we're working in, Um, I just want to highlight what that means. So according to the National Cancer Institute, COVID delays in cancer screenings and treatments could lead to six to 10,000 excess deaths from breast and colorectal cancers in the U.S. over the next decade. Because women aren't getting their checkup. They're getting screened. It goes back to the early um, stages of the pandemic where um, there were shutdowns of elective procedures. Remember, there was there's a combination of mandatory shutdowns that have created backlogs in treatment, but then as things started opening up, there's still patients who are hesitant about coming in to about their treatment. So 44% of breast cancer patients actually delayed their treatment, whether it was in, or in their control or not. And that includes 30% who postponed critical breast cancer treatments, such as lumpectomies. And they, well, I guess... Do we know why they did it? Was it because like they had their the child carer, you know, in their family and they like couldn't go? Or was it more like they were nervous about getting sick? Or do we know that? Well, like I said, one of the, one of the major reasons is early in the pandemic across North America, elective um, procedures got shut down because oh, they needed to treat COVID, right? It's uh, when ICUs were surging and they needed beds. And so it wasn't a choice. Oh, Later okay. on, this thing started to open up any one of those combination of um, reasons that you mentioned, I think the number one concern is about risk of getting COVID. And so there's still some hesitancy out there. Um, But, you know, people are starting to to come back and we've been working hard on the show 
um, to help reinforce the messaging of all the protective measures that hospitals are taking, what they've learned over the course of the pandemic. And uh, because it's so important to get that um, treatment, to get your breast screenings, um, when, because when the cancer advances, then um, it, there's the risk of metastasizing. So you want to catch it when it's early and you want to catch it when you do have the choice of a lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. So I guess going back to innovation, I think any innovation that can um, help to work through this backlog to improve hospital efficiencies, bring care to patients instead of trying to um, convince them to come in. You know, some things don't always require the patient to be in. So can you, there, there are programs that take screenings to communities so that you can actually do breast cancer screening where the patient is instead of waiting for them to come in. Um, thinking creatively like that and challenging that status quo, I think is lots of opportunity from a femtech perspective right now. Absolutely. Like imagine a world where, you know, um, blood donation, it's like a campaigns like, oh, the blood people are here, like sign up to give blood, but like, it could be like the breast exam people or something, you know, like imagine if that was an organization and it wasn't, you know, I think that that probably exists um, in terms of nonprofit efforts and places where they don't have a lot of mammograms machines and stuff, but like yes. even in, you know, huge metropolitan, highly affluent cities and countries, like women are still so um, uh, overwhelmed with all the tasks that they have to do and hospital schedules being just so hard to get into, you know, scheduling time and, um, yeah. Oh my goodness. I want to comment on that, right? Because yeah. that is um, some the number one and two, the top two reasons for um, why uh, that uh, for socioeconomic and uh, healthcare disparities is because of access to transportation, right? To be able to come into the hospital, that is the number one uh, reason why patients um, can't come in, wow. and also childcare. So yeah. being able to arrange childcare. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. And you said historically pandemics affect women more. Is that true? Like we have studies from like Ebola outbreaks or the Spanish flu that like women were, um, you know, had more negative effects. Yeah, I was actually um, just reading the other day. Uh, I think it was a Harvard Business Review article that um, summed that up and talked exactly to that. Ebola is a, is a case that was looked at globally around the world. Um, women have historically always, you know, gotten the brunt of the pandemics. Wow. Interesting. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Well, more forums like this, femtech focus, mm -hmm. where women are supporting women and can connect with one another. And I think that, you know, more funds and showcases by successful women entrepreneurs for women aspiring to be entrepreneurs. So um, just uh, recently, just in the last few weeks, uh, Women Who Tech, they just launched a Femtech and Health Tech Grants Challenge. I think things like that, those are great examples. Yep. Um, but I also just want to point out a really uh, great fact. And I think it's one that as female founders, we should all be proud of and get loud about mm -hmm. in Femtech. And that is that female founded startups actually outperform um, their male counterparts dollar for dollar. And so uh, that's actually for every dollar of funding, female founded startups um, actually generate 78 cents while um, startups that are founded by men generate only 31 cents. 
So that's a stat that I'm proud to be a part of. So I want to invite you and our listeners to share that on social. So let's get loud and proud about that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, I was actually just talking to somebody about, um, you know, Roe acquired modern fertility for $225 million. They Roe has, has raised, I think like $500 million, maybe even more, maybe even a, yeah, I don't know, but at least half a billion dollars and modern fertility was up and running and, uh, generating revenue. And they had only raised 20 million and Roe had raised half a billion and they ended up just acquiring modern fertility. But for me as an investor as well, I also think about like, wow, my, my dollars would come back so much bigger if I invest in modern fertility because they were just 20 million. They were, were out there just totally birthing it, right? Like they're doing amazing work and got acquired. Um, and so it's just really interesting to, to see uh, if hims and hers was born a hers and hims, you know, um, how, how would that company look like today? Uh, and one last question you brought up something interesting to me is, do you think that more women in STEM, so more chemists like you, geneticists like me, engineers, um, you know, product designers, do you think that as we are, are rising in our careers and we're getting fed up with status quos, you see a, a wire hanging out of woman's breast and you're like, this is uh, barbaric. This is unacceptable. Why hasn't them have, do you think that the reason these things haven't been addressed yet is because men were pretty much the doctors and the radiologies and the inventors and the product creators and engineers. And therefore they, they thought like that was a, a good enough solution. And like now women are stepping up and saying it's not good enough. What do you think about that? Hmm. So uh, actually in the breast cancer space, most breast surgeons are women. Oh, oh, that's cool. That is, that is uh, cool. Uh, I think that um, in terms of, you know, why it's taken so long, it's not a really easy problem to solve. I think that there's been um, different ways of trying to come at it. And to give you an example, uh, you know, Molly uh, being the seed-based technology that does away with the wire, well, before it, what um, what the doctors started trying to do themselves because they saw this need. So to your point, they saw it. Nobody had made it. So they went out and they just took what they had and they did a radioactive version of what I described for Molly. Oh. Molly has no radioactivity. It's all about using a magnetic marker and magnetic technology. But back in the 2000s, that was the first attempt where they organically started um, to take whatever they hand had, and they were using these radioactive seeds that they were using for what's called brachytherapy, and that's an internal radiation therapy. It's a way of treating cancers. And they said, we're going to take the seed that we have, we can use that signal, and it was actually the doctors who first started to reinvent it, but it took some time to come up with a non-radioactive way to do away with that radioactivity. Yeah. That's actually how Molly was modeled. Molly was meant to be a totally non-radioactive version of what doctors had already started to do and that worked for them. Yeah. Do you think that the doctors in the um, 2000s working on it, it was because that was maybe when more women were becoming the majority breast cancer surgeons? Because I think back in the 70s, if we look at the percentages of surgeons that were women versus men, I could imagine it was less than it was in like the 2000s, right? Yeah, but I don't think the technology existed back in the 70s. I can't really comment on what the proportion of the mix looked like, Um, but uh, there might be a a component of that. I I think it's just that the the technology, um, 
isn't an easy one to solve, right? And so there's a lot of patent protected technology that goes into what we uh, created at Molly. Mm -hmm. So cool. Well, thank you for everything you do. I'm definitely going to check out your show, Breast Practices. That's awesome. Um, And I am uh, really excited to see how Molly can improve the healthcare system and make a huge difference for women. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, let's give that shout out for on social and, and make sure that everybody knows that women actually generate more revenue on every dollar invested. Heck yeah. Thank you to our sponsor, Witham, and thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Fazala Seeker, co-founder and CEO of Molly Surgical. Not only is Molly the technology that women deserve, but it also streamlines workflows and saves patients money. At Ottawa Hospital, they found that wires cost $1,100 and the radioactive seed cost only $250. They were also able to see nine more women per day by inserting the seed over the wire. They had one radiologist one day a week performing the same number of cases as two radiologists five days a week with the wire. I anticipate this company being very successful, so let's keep track. Alrighty, Femme fans, speaking of exits, be sure to download our Femtech Landscape Report at femtechfocus.org backslash resources. Give the show a five-star review, share it with a friend, join our virtual community, and become a Femme Pro member for only $10 a month. Gives you access to the Femtech Institute, which is a library of Femtech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your startup and teach you more about the Femtech industry. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech book club, which are always so fun, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.